Hi, good morning. I'm going to get us started. Welcome, good morning. Adam, Adam Abels lives in Texas now, but he used to joke that every time Deeper starts, it's like January at the gym, right? It's full and then it sort of dissipates over the semester. So my, my first challenge to you would be uh, don't dissipate. Don't die off. It will be worth it if you stick it through. It's hard to get up early and get here. I know for some guys it's harder than others. Um, but the, a lot of the fruit of the labor, if you will, pays off the further down you get in, this, in, a, in a particular series. So the guys who are here all the time can attest to that. Um, you start laying groundwork and building. And, and, and here's the thing. If, if you know, you're here to till the soil and to throw some seed down and you don't stay until something grows from it and produces fruit, then you kind of miss out on, you know, what, what really is a lot of fun. So, um, speaking of which, this morning we're going to start laying the groundwork for the latter prophets. I'm going to lay the groundwork for them. Like, who are they? Uh, what are they about? And, and in what way do we come about, go about reading the latter prophets? Um, and then we'll sort of introduce Isaiah a bit so let me pray and we'll get rolling. Father, we're thankful for this morning. We're thankful that your mercies are new every morning, that we have a chance to be here, um, to spend time in your word, to think about this section of scripture which your spirit has superintended for the benefit of your people. We pray that you would be honored um, in our time together in the word that we would understand your word, that your spirit would make it clear for us. And even as we attempt to come at the book of Isaiah and, and the, the rest of the latter prophets, that you would be exalted in that time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, just a couple things as we jump in. I want to lay some theological foundations are behind me, so some of you are like, I can't see that. Um, I want to lay some theological foundations, but first I want to talk a little bit about the prophets just generally. I don't have that up here, but I just want to remind, by way of reminder, we've been working through the Bible story, and I'm going to go back on it, and the guys who come consistently know that I'm always going back um, so that you, we can come forward together to where we are. But I want to understand, help you understand who the latter prophets are. Does anybody know off the top of your head when I say latter prophets who I'm referring to? What I'm referring to? Yes, sir? Isn't it like the, the former, when you look at it originally in the, like the Tanakh, the Good. former is like the more storyline-based Joshua up to, I guess, up wherever it ends, and the latter is more like the, what we consider the prophets of the Bible. Good. Okay. And guys, by the way, guys, there are seats all through up here if you want to move forward. Um, if you will... In, in the Hebrew Old Testament, which is the order we're following, the order of the Hebrew Old Testament, you have what you call the law, which is what we might call the book of Moses or the first five books. Okay, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then you're going to have, and I'm just giving you our English terms for this, okay? I the Torah, this Hebrew, but we, the law, the first five books. The, the next thing you have is the prophets. Now, when I say the prophets, that's a reference to two groups, what they call former prophets and latter prophets. 
The former prophets are what we would call the historical books. Joshua, Judges, uh, 1st 2nd Samuel, 1st 2nd Kings, etc. You guys follow me on that? Okay. Those are the former prophets. The latter prophets are going to be those books that we think of generally as the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. And then you're going to have... Uh, that's what, this is what we're on now. When we did... Um, when we did Joshua through uh, Joshua Judges, First Second Samuel, First Second Kings, I threw Ruth in there, though she doesn't technically belong in the former prophets. I put her there for historical reasons. But when we did the former prophets, we finished in the spring, and now we're on the latter prophets. That's who we're going to spend our time on, at least for the better part of this year. Uh, by this year, I mean by school year. My guess is if we finish the latter prophets. Before May, we are cruising, man. We are moving, okay? So we'll see, all right? And then the final section you might call the wisdom, some literature, sometimes it's called um, Psalms. It's just called Psalms. You know, Jesus will say the Psalms. He'll say the, uh, he'll say Moses, the prophets, if you will, and the Psalms. You guys ever notice that kind of thing? Okay? So the wisdom or the Psalms, but this is going to be your wisdom literature, Job, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Proverbs, those sections, all right? We will come to this section um, last as we, this all makes up the Old Testament, we'll come to this section last of wisdom literature as we go through the Old Testament. Right now, this is where we are, is on the prophets, and specifically the latter prophets, um, as we go through. So we're going to focus all of our attention over the next several months. I hope not years, on the latter prophets, okay? Um, And we're going to move through them. So that's where we are. We're in the latter prophets. And the latter prophet we're taking on first is Isaiah. The reason we're starting with Isaiah is Isaiah's, you know, he's sort of, um, he's the first really latter prophet mentioned, but we start with him uh, for a variety of reasons. He's a pre-exilic prophet and he is, an exilic prophet to some degree as well, but largely a pre-exilic prophet. In other words, prior to the exile um, is where Isaiah's ministry exists. You guys know the story of Israel. They're in the land. Um, and then there's an exile. Before the exile, um, then you have prophets. Prophets during the exile, okay, when they're exiled for 70 years under Babylon, Medo-Persia, etc., during the exile, you have prophets like Daniel is an exilic prophet. He's prophesied during the exile. And then you have prophets post-exilic, they call them, or after the exile. So the, the Isaiah is a pre-exilic or before the exile prophet. Okay, um, So we'll mark it around that. With that said, I want to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. And I sort of want to begin to set this up. Um, by going backwards and setting up the, the prophets, um, kind of giving you some idea. Isaiah 1 and verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Notice that um, Isaiah's vision... Uh, particularly Isaiah 1, chapter 1 through 39. I'll get into this later, like next week, so you don't have to worry about too much right now. 
is concerning Judah and Jerusalem, and he gives you the time period. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. This is all before the exile. You guys follow that? Under these kings of Judah. Okay? Uh, and it's a vision he received for Judah and, and, um, and Jerusalem, which is all referencing the southern kingdom. Okay? And so we'll get more into that later. Um, but notice how he starts. He says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. So he calls on witnesses. Listen to what this vision is. Heavens, give ear, O earth. So he calls on the heaven and the earth to witness this vision, he's going to say. For the Lord has spoken. That, that word is all caps in your Bible, right? The Lord has spoken. When you see all capitals, L-O-R-D, that is the English way of translating Yahweh. Okay, the covenant name of the Lord. The Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. So we have this kind of ominous start. The father, the covenant Lord, sees himself as a father of these children. Speaking of Judah and Jerusalem, and these children have rebelled. Okay, and that's kind of an ominous start to a vision, isn't it? All right, and so that's where we're starting is Isaiah, this prophet prior to Israel being exiled under Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, prior to that happening, with Isaiah having this vision, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he calls heaven and earth to witness. And he begins by saying, um, speaking on behalf of the covenant Lord Yahweh, saying, I'm a father of children who've rebelled. Okay? That's where we start. Now, I want to lay some foundations for this vision and then come back to this. When I say theological foundations, what I mean is these are some fundamental things you need to know. So the first thing you need to understand is whether you've been here or not, hey guys, there's some seats right up over here, and there's one there and one there. Um, the first thing you need to know, I hope this mic is picking me up okay. Is that, okay. The first thing you need to know um, as we go through this section is, um, is what we've covered before. So most of the men in here, at some point or another, have heard me go over this overview, but I'm going to do it again, okay? And I'm going to do it again because you cannot read Isaiah properly without this context, okay? I, I want you to understand that. Isaiah just starts writing as if his audience knows what he's talking about, okay? Uh, there's a reason for that. There's an assumption you've been reading everything else, you've got some understanding of everything else, and so I want to ground us there. So the first proposition I put up here, you see it says, God relates to us by covenants. Okay? Now, I, in other words, this first theological proposition that you need to know, or foundation is, that God covenants. This is how he relates to his creatures. And by creatures, I mean specifically as image bearers, okay? He covenants with us. That's how he relates. You guys know what a covenant is? Um, because we have the marriage covenant as an example. And the marriage covenant isn't exactly the same, but I'll, I'll take it close enough, right? You, you it gives us a, a, an analogy. Uh, a husband and a wife come together, and they make a set of vows to one another, right? Okay? They have, if you will, stipulations to the covenant. 
um, promises. I vow this, I vow that, I vow this. The other person re-stipulates that. I vow this, I vow that. So you can follow me on that. And now they're in a covenantal bond, an exclusive relationship in which they're committed to one another. Okay? Um, God relates to us that way. All right? He covenants with us. Now, his covenants are unilateral in one sense. What do I mean by unilateral? Anybody? He determines. He makes the terms. Yeah, so he sets it. He comes, if you will, God comes to us and says, here's the covenant. Okay? You see, I'm not going to draw any picture of God because of the second commandment, but I will draw my picture of man, right? Here he is. He's happy because God has covenanted with him. All right? So God covenants with us unilaterally. Now, the covenant has a bilateral nature in the sense that when he gives the covenant unilaterally, when he imposes it unilaterally, he says, you need to re-stipulate this way. You need to respond to me in these ways. You guys follow me on that? So it's, it's one party imposing the covenant, but the other party is expected to respond. Okay? So while it's unilateral in its imposition... It's, it's bilateral as far as it's, it's, um, it has two parties to it. Okay? You just follow me on that? God is one party. Man is the other party. All right? And so he, he imposes it unilaterally, but it's bilateral this way. Now, we think of the biblical covenants largely as unconditional, and that's an error. That's an error. So I want to explain why that's an error in a bit. These, con- these covenants are conditional. However, the promises will be unconditionally kept. And so I want to talk about that in a, in a minute. We, we think promises are unconditional. Therefore, the covenants are in every way unconditional. That's not true. Okay? Um, the promises are unconditional, um, if you will. But there are conditions placed in the covenant. So I want to talk about that in a minute. My point is, God covenants with man. That's how he relates to us. Now I want to look at these primary covenants. You can see what I put up here. God relates us by covenants. And notice I've put two covenants, if you will. I've, I've put them in parallel in the way I've outlined this. Do you guys see that? So Adam's covenant of works and Christ's covenant of grace. Do you guys see that? Okay, so I want, to, I want you to understand that there are two major covenants in the Bible ultimately. The one God makes with the first Adam and the one God makes with the second Adam. Okay? Now, where do I get that idea? Romans chapter 5. Paul flat says it in Romans 5. Okay? Verse 12 and following. He says that God covenanted with Adam in the first man's disobedience. We all fell. We're condemned. In the second man's or Adam's obedience, right? righteousness, we all have life. You guys follow me on that? The Bible, if you will, breaks down under two Adams. First Adam, right, the Adam of the garden, if you will, the one who fell into sin. Second Adam, Christ. Okay? We, we often refer to these things as Adam's covenant of works and Christ's covenant of grace. What's the distinction? Look with me, if you will, at Genesis chapter 1. I want to look briefly at Adam's covenant of works. God creates everything in the space of six days. Three days he forms, three days he fills. 
but he creates the whole thing. On the sixth day, we get to this part in verse 26, when it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This is verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God said, or God blessed them, sorry. First thing, God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. And over every living thing that moves on the earth. I come back here because I want to make this fundamental uh, point. God creates everything. He forms it, he fills it, and on the sixth day, at the pinnacle of his creation, he creates man, his image bearer. Okay? And what does an image bearer do? Anybody? Reflects God's image. Okay? So, if you think about a mirror, a mirror is an image bearer. Right? Unfortunately, the older you get, the more it bears bad news. Right? But you look in the mirror and it reflects your image. Is the image in the mirror you? No, it's the image in the mirror, okay? And is it you? In case you get confused, okay? That's your image being reflected to you, okay? Man is an, is an image bearer. That's how he's created, to bear the image of God. That means he's reflecting God's character and attributes. It does not mean that God has a body like men, Okay? Uh, one of the first, most fundamental things you teach your children in the children's catechism is God does not have a body like men. Okay, God is spirit. So, but it means that we're reflecting His character, His attributes, who He essentially is. In that sense, we're reflecting it to the world. He creates this world, and He creates a man to reflect His glory. You guys follow me on that? If you will, the glory of God is is, in some sense, the outshining of his characteristics, right? And so he's, he, that's why Jesus can be called the glory of God, right? He's shining out God's characteristics. He's the brightness of his glory. Okay, so when we think about that, we're, we're, we were created to reflect God's glory to the world. Now notice what else he says in that creation account. It's not only we're created to reflect God's glory to the world, but we're created to do it in a specific way. They were to have dominion over everything. So Adam is a king. Now he's a vice regent, if you will. He serves a greater king, the God of all things. But he is a king on earth who is reflecting God's glory to the world. You guys following me so far? Okay? He's, he's spreading God's glory. Notice what God blesses him, so he's a blessed king, and he's to then bless the world by doing what? Being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. Filling the earth with what? More image bearers. In other words, spreading the glory of God across the earth. So Adam's original commission as the first man, the first king, if you will, that God has created, is to spread God's glory across the earth. Now he's also the man who hears God speak. Okay? He walks with God closely, hears him speak, and he speaks what he speaks, if you will. Okay, now I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, but that means not only a king, but he's also a, or a prophet. Okay, when you speak what God speaks, you hear what God speaks, you speak to others, that's prophetic, right? You follow me on that? 
So he's a king and he's a prophet. But look at chapter 2 and verse 15. Bo is getting ahead of me. Chapter 2 and verse 15. Notice the language. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. That's the Hebrew word from which we get uh, the word priestly service. Okay, To serve like a priest and to keep it. Or the word you see, that's the same word you see at the end of Gen- near the end of Genesis when it talks about the, the cherubim who are guarding the garden. Okay, He is to serve as a priest and protect the garden. You follow me on that? Okay, what's he protecting it from? As a priest king and prophet, he's protecting it from anything unclean. Okay? Protecting from anything unclean. So Adam is this prophet, priest, and king who is the heir of all things, right? He's inheriting the earth. Who is to spread the glory of God across the earth. That's the scene we have. He's given a woman to help him do that. Okay? But that's the scene we have. That's why it's ominous when you hear that a serpent slithered into the garden. In Levitical law, what's a serpent? Clean or unclean animal? Unclean. Unclean. Do you think the Jews know that when they receive when they when they're reading Genesis? Yes, and so when the serpent slithers into the garden, Adam should have guarded it. Cut that thing's head off, but he didn't. Instead, he let it whisper to his wife. Okay, you guys see where this whole problem it unravels as a complex set of events in Genesis 3. But notice the command that Adam's given. This is what I mean by the covenant of works. And the Lord God commanded the man, verse 16 of chapter 2, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Adam, you can eat anything that I've given you that bears fruit. It's all yours. That tree, don't eat that. Okay? Now here's this covenant of works. God is making a covenant with him. He's unilaterally imposing it. He's saying, I've given everything to you, but not that. You eat that, okay? You what? Die. Okay? You don't eat that, and what other tree is there? tree of life, not just the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life. So if Adam resists the temptation, if you will, to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he will get to eat from the tree of life and live forever. Thus, Adam has imposed upon him a very, if you will, strict condition. Keep it, you live. Fail to keep it, you die. You guys understand why I say covenant of works? You follow me on that? Okay, so some people will say it never says it's a covenant here. I don't have time to prove that this is a covenant, but I can. Okay, it's got all the elements of a covenant: um, the parties, the requirements, stipulations, reward, etc. It also is called a covenant in Hosea. He says the covenant Adam broke. There you go. All right. So what must he be referring to? Okay. Um, I think it's Hosea 6, 7 if I'm right. But anyway, all right. um, So that's Adam's covenant. We know that the snake comes into the garden, deceives his wife, and Adam, who is with her, takes of the fruit and eats as well. 
and they die. Say, they don't physically die right that minute, but death is now theirs. The wages of sin is death. Death is coming for them. All of life is degrading. They are then put under the curse. Remember before, God blessed them. God blessed them. Now God is cursing them. Okay? And if you will, fear, shame, guilt, I mean the bad kind of fear. Not fear of God, good, right? But but fear for your life, if you will. Fear of other things. There's a variety of fear, shame, and guilt all arrive in their lives. Um, death arrives for them, corruption, it all comes unraveled. Okay? We see that in Genesis 3 as a result of the curse that drops upon them because they violated the covenant of works. Right? In the midst of that curse, we hear the covenant of grace announced. So look at Genesis 3 and verse 15. The Lord is cursing the serpent first, or Satan. And as he curses Satan, he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So there are going to be, if you will, the people of God or the woman, people of the woman or the people of God, and the people of the serpent. The serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. And they will be always at enmity. God's people and the people of this present darkness will always be at enmity. You guys follow that so far? Okay. You see that played out, by the way, in the in the life of Israel. They always have peoples at enmity with them, don't they? Okay. They're always at enmity with people. So, and you see that continuing today, even, but with us, don't you? Okay. The world is at enmity with Christians. So, I'll put enmity. Notice, though, he goes to the singular now. He, the seed of the woman, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. heel. Now, there was a um, there was a singular reference in the first part of verse 15, but it's what I want to get at. Among the offspring of the woman, there's one offspring in specific that he's talking about. Okay? One in specific. Who is that offspring? The seed of the woman. Who's the seed of the woman? Well, if you're just reading Genesis 3, we don't know yet. But we know he's coming, and we know he'll conquer Satan, sin, and death. Okay? We know he'll be victorious. Now, um, who is he? That's the question you begin to ask. Okay? All through here. The question you begin to ask. Who is he? Who is the seed of the woman? And you start to wait for the seed of the woman to come. Right? Cain and Abel are born. Is it Cain? Kills his brother. Okay? Eve says, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord, which may or may not be an indication that she thinks Cain might be that seed. Right? But... He kills his brother, not the seed of the woman. Definitely the seed of the serpent, okay? And you keep going. Seth comes along. Then the daughters of Seth um, marry, intermarry, if you will, or the, if, or the sons of Seth, potentially. The sons of God may, may be a reference to the sons of Seth. I'm not going to debate that. Uh, Maybe a reference to uh, demons. Depends on how you read that text and how you want to see that. But... 
They intermarry the daughters of men. We have this major fall, um, further fall, if you will, into wickedness, and then comes the flood, right? And in the flood narrative, who's the who's the mediator there, if you will? Who's the one with whom God covenants Noah? And Noah brings him out. And you go, is Noah the seed of the woman? Right? And then Noah gets drunk, all goes south. He's not the seed of the woman, right? Then you get to Abraham. Him? No. Hey, this is my sister. Take her. You know, okay? So you just keep going down the line and you keep getting disappointed over and over and over again. You get little glimpses into maybe this is the seed of the woman, but you're waiting for the seed of the woman. Now we're told clearly when we get to the new covenant that Jesus is that seed of the woman that we've been waiting for. In other words, this is his covenant of grace being made here. He's going to come and he's going to conquer Satan's sin and death. Okay? He's going to do that. God is graciously, after the fall, making this covenant to save his people in the seed of the woman. Okay? He's doing that. They fall into sin. They deserve death. But he's graciously going to interpose the seed of the woman to save them. You guys follow me on that? Thus the covenant of grace. In one man, Paul says, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, in one man, one man, sin or transgression, we all died. In another man's obedience, we all live. Those two major covenants bracket the Bible. Now, what I want you to know about this is that Adam is a picture of that coming Christ in many regards, the second Adam. He fell, he wasn't what he's supposed to be, but he gives you a picture. Because he's a prophet, he's a priest, he's a king. Because he is supposed to spread God's glory across the earth, because he is the heir. And then Christ comes, the seed of the woman, and he is all those things. In spades. Right? Alright, so... Christ's covenant of grace has this breakdown. If you notice there, I talked about Noah's covenant. You guys remember the flood happens. God saves Noah. And you kind of have this common grace covenant. What do I mean by common grace covenant? Uh, Genesis chapter 9, God covenants with Noah. He re-stipulates a lot of the stuff that you saw in Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Somebody asks me, people ask me all the time, is, is the command for married people to continue to have children still in effect? Yes. How do I know that? Because Noah's covenant's still in effect. How do I know that? Because God hasn't flooded the earth yet. Right? In other words, Noah's covenant's still in effect today. You understand that, right? Okay? So he makes this covenant. I will not flood the earth again. I won't destroy the earth that way. Okay? So I'm not going to do that. And the rainbow is the, the sign for me to remember my covenant. And that covenant is still in effect. But that's a common grace covenant. It keeps all mankind from being destroyed instantly as he deserves for sin. Okay? Still in effect. Now, as you go down the line, uh, you then get to Abraham. Comes from that line. Most specifically from the line of Shem. Abraham comes along. First, Abram, and God comes to him and makes a promise. And he says, Abram, listen. Five blessings, by the way, in in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Responding to the five curses that you've seen. So you have the five blessings that drop on Abraham. Responding to the five curses that you see in Genesis 3 that happened there um, in Abraham's life. Not just in Genesis 12, 1 3. But he's going to be somehow a reversal. The curse starts with Abraham. So God covenants with Abraham. 
And there's three major points or three major parts to that covenant. Land, you're going to get this land. Okay? Now that land becomes typological. What do I mean by a type? Typological. When I say typological, what do I mean? Represents something else. Represents something greater. Okay? If you think about a type or a shadow, you guys all, you all when you walk around in the sun, you cast a shadow, right? Okay? Hopefully. <laughs> all right? So you cast a shadow. Your shadow represents you, but your shadow is not you. It tells the truth about you some degree, but it's not you. You guys understand the distinction there? Okay? The land is a type or shadow. What do I mean by that? These boundaries that Abraham's given. We're told in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham was actually looking forward when he lived the land, he lived as one in tents because he was looking forward to the city whose architect and builder is God. In other words, he understood all along that this was representative of that heavenly city, that new heavens and new earth, that it was a picture of that. Okay, So he's given a land that Israel is to occupy, who is going to be his offspring. He's given a seed. He's promised a seed. You're going to have so many children. They're going to be like the stars of the sky. They're going to be like the sand of the seashore. They're going to be innumerable. You guys remember this? Okay. And most specifically, there's one seed, Genesis 22, who's going to, if you will, rule over them all. Okay. One seed whom you're waiting for. He will be a blessing to all nations. And that's the other promise. Genesis 12, verse 3. That you're in, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So is it just Israel that's going to be blessed through Abraham? No. Everyone is. No, yeah. All the families of the earth will be blessed in Abraham. Abraham understands that, by the way. Genesis 17, the Lord comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to change your... Or, it was with Abram there, then, exalted father. Comes to Abraham and says, I'm changing your name. And he gives him a new name. And his name is Abraham, which means father of many nations. So now when you understand that, when you walk into Genesis 18, and Abraham hears that the Lord's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham begins to intercede for those foreign nations and pray for them, what's Abraham taking seriously? His name. His His role. He's to be a blessing to the nations. Okay? And so you see Abraham begin to take that seriously. He is, he, there's a land that Abraham gets, a seed that Abraham gets, most specifically, the seed of the woman has now been narrowed down to the seed of Abraham. And he is the father of the blessing to all nations. Okay, the father of all nations, the blessing to all nations in him. All right, now, under Abraham's covenant, you then get, um, if you notice what I put there, the Mosaic covenant. Okay? You get the Mosaic Covenant. Abraham's covenant, if you'll notice, is subsidiary to this, what I'm calling the Christ's covenant of grace. Okay? You get Abraham's covenant, and underneath that you get the Mosaic Covenant. Israel, Abraham's people grow. We're going through Genesis. He has a son. His name is? Abraham's son, his name is? Isaac, the chosen son. There's also Ishmael, but the elect one is Isaac. He has Isaac, and then he has, Isaac has a son, and his chosen son is? Jacob. Okay? And then Jacob, you begin to read the story of Jacob, and most specifically you read the story of Joseph as they go into Egypt, and they're delivered in some sense by Joseph in Egypt. And Jacob, 
Um, at the end of his life, sits up in bed, Hebrews tells us. That's his, in faith, he sat up in bed, right? And he blesses, like, that's his faithful act. He sits up in bed, and he blesses his, his children. And when he blesses them, he tells them about the latter days. Let me tell you, let me give you a blessing and tell you about what's going to happen in the latter days. Right? That end of the age. He blesses them, and he comes to his son Judah, and he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. To him will be the obedience of the people. Nope. Of the peoples. Why does that matter? Judah will now be the king who comes from Israel. His tribe, right? There's 12 tribes. His tribe will be the king, the tribe through whom the king comes. And the king will rule over who? Israel? Not just Israel. Not just Israel, but the peoples. The obedience of the peoples will be to him. You guys following this? Okay, so now they're in Egypt. Um, 400 years, 430 years passes. They're in slavery in Egypt now to a pharaoh. And God raises a man named Moses. And Moses, which he promised in Genesis 15 would happen, by the way. Genesis 15, when he covenants with Abraham, he promises this day is coming. He raises up Moses, and Moses takes the people of Israel out of Egypt... And they go on a journey to the promised land. Okay? And um, there are all sorts of miraculous events. But on the way to the promised land, God makes a covenant with the national people of Israel. Hear that? He makes a covenant with them as a nation state. Okay? Um, It doesn't replace Abraham's covenant. I want you to hear that. It doesn't replace Abraham's covenant. In fact, if you read Exodus... Over and over and over again, why does God save Israel? Because he made a promise to who? To Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Doesn't replace it. Moses' covenant comes in service to Abraham's covenant. Okay? Comes in service. It's um, this word, I'm going to call this because I think it's hopeful. um, And I think, in fact, Hebrews refers to it this way. Um... It's an administration of Abraham's covenant. Okay? Say, Hebrews refers to it. Yes. Hebrews chapter 3, Moses is an oikonomia, an economy, an administration of um, the household of God. Okay? Administration. Jesus is the son of that house, um, but Moses is a servant in that house. That house being the people of God. Alright? The church of God. So... Moses is an administration. You guys know what administration is, right? Okay, think about it. We have a constitutional government. So we have a covenant, if you will. Okay? I'm going to stretch the analogy a little bit, but just follow with me. We have a covenant that was made at the beginning of this nation, right? We call the Constitution. Right? The covenant lays out how our leaders may govern us. Okay? Given that governance by the people. They may govern us in these ways and not in these ways. Okay? Now, federally, it's a federal constitution. I'm not going to get into all of the distinctions there. But here's the point. Every covenant, if you will, every presidential administration, okay, is a kind of administration of that constitution. Okay? That's not the only thing that is, but you need to understand that there are administrations of that um, original covenant we made, we call it the president's administration. This is President Trump's administration, right? He's executing, okay, the Constitution. 
Now, you might take that in more than one word, but depending on your political perspective. But he's, he's the executive over the Constitution. You guys follow me on that? Okay. Moses is an administration of Abraham's covenant. You guys follow me on that? Okay. And an administration that is national, temporary, and legal in a sense. I'm not saying there's, there's no grace in here because they're under a gracious covenant with Abraham. God comes and imposes a gracious covenant on Abraham unilaterally. Okay? Um, there are stipulations to it. You can read them in Genesis 17. But it's unilaterally given graciously. And Moses is a temporary, legal, national administration of that gracious covenant with Abraham. You guys following me so far? Now, Israel as a nation is to live under that. They're given all these laws. They're national laws. For the nation state of Israel. Okay? That's what those laws are given. Here's how you run your government. Here's how you live as a people. Here's how you run worship. Okay? It's a theocratic state. Therefore, those laws apply to both their government and their worship. Okay? Both. Right? And here's how you do that. Now, that covenant is largely made in Exodus 19 to 24. It's cut in Exodus 24. Okay? That's where it's cut. All right? Um, they live under that covenant. You guys know Leviticus gives you a lot of the content of that, dealing with the temple worship or the tabernacle worship, etc. And the people are still traveling toward the promised land. So the people are numerous. The seed of Abraham is spreading. The people are this nation, right, going toward their land. Are they yet a blessing to all nations? No. They're headed to the, the promised land. As they go there, they're in all kinds of sin. In fact, while God is making this covenant with them, what are they doing? Making an idol. They're making an idol. They're in sin. Even while the covenant is being made at Mount Sinai, they're at the bottom of the mountain sinning, okay? Committing idolatry and violating it. Um, but God is still gracious to them because they're in a gracious covenant, okay? Um, so, this mosaic has given them, they're living under that. You see that followed out in Numbers um, and in Deuteronomy, you get the second telling of that law, okay? To the second generation. The first generation sins so grievously at this point that they're being told, you're not going into the promised land. They actually land, if you will, east of the Jordan. They can see from the mountain the promised land. They can see it. But what can they not do? Enter it. Okay? And so they're going to die there, looking at the promised land across the Jordan. And the second generation is going to go in. That's why we have the book Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, right? Namas law, Deutero second. Second telling of the law. Okay? To the second generation. So that they can enter the land. Here's, don't do what we did. Right? Remember what God commands. And so then, in Joshua, Joshua leads them into the land. Takes them in. And they begin the conquest of the land. Are they fully obedient? No, they continue to disobey in a number of ways. Okay? But now they're God's people in God's place or His land. Right? But they're not being fully obedient. They're not being, if you will, the blessing the nations are supposed to be. And you read about that in Joshua. That problem gets worse in Judges. 
right? Depressing book. As you read about their continual sin and God's continual redemption of them, it gets worse in Judges. And then let me take a step beyond that. As you come into First and Second Samuel, the people are in the land. Um, they're in quite a bit of sin coming out of the period of Judges, and God raises up this prophet Samuel. And Samuel functions sort of in the roles of prophet, priest, and king for a bit, um, to some degree. And eventually, um, the people say, we want a king just like the nations. Now, I want to say this. The problem is not that they want a king. The problem is that they want a king just like the nations. What's the difference? They need a king. They were promised a king in Genesis 49. Okay? Adam was a king. He failed to be a godly king. You guys understand the distinction there? They need one. But Saul ain't him. Okay? Saul's a king like the nations, and so God rebukes them most specifically for the kind of king they want. Deuteronomy 17 has laid out what kind of king they need, and they don't want that kind of king. The godly, humble king who listens to God's law and blesses the people and blesses the nations and doesn't take a lot of wealth for himself. That's the kind of king they need, Deuteronomy 17. But that ain't the kind of king they want. They want a king like the nations, so they go after one and get one, and his name is Saul. Okay, Looks good at first. You think maybe he's the seed of the woman, but you find out quick, fast, in a hurry, Saul is no good. Okay, And God is looking for a king who is a man after his own heart. And God appoints who? David. And along comes David. Now the people are in the land. They have the Levitical priesthood. They have the king. They have prophets. Prophets, priests, and kings are all there. It all looks good. David seems like the godly man we all hoped for all these years. He must be the seed of the woman. Okay? He's conquering all the territories God told him to conquer. He is enforcing God's law in a godly way. He listens to the prophets. He doesn't get in the way of the priests. He's everything they want in a king. He's humble. He's godly. All looks good. But then one day you get this ominous note. David stayed back from the war. And you go, what? That's ominous already because a king is supposed to go to war with his people. He doesn't go. Stays back. You have an ominous note. And the next thing you hear is he's up on the roof and he's perving out over Bathsheba. Okay? And he calls her over. Okay? Um, and he has sexual relations with her, gets her pregnant, and then decides to kill her husband who's faithful to David. And you realize in that instance... David is not the seed of the woman, right? Who is he? All right, and then David has all sorts of problems. You keep looking. Eventually, God comes to David, by the way, before Bathsheba's fall in 2 Samuel 7 and makes this promise to him. You will be an eternal king and you'll have an eternal kingdom in Jerusalem, Zion, on this mountain. There will be an eternal temple, an eternal kingdom, this city, and you will be the eternal king. Now, that's going to be through his seed. You guys follow me on that? So you start narrowing this down. David, though, if you notice, I put it underneath Moses. I put it in. Because Moses' covenant is still in effect. David's a king underneath the, the rule of the law under Moses. You guys follow me on that? But his promise is further. Your seed is going to bring this eternal king. And this eternal heavenly Jerusalem. 
right? This eternal Jerusalem. Your king is going, your seed is going to bring that. All right, now, he promises that to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, verses 13 and 14. He promises that to him. Now, um, you don't have to look there, but I want to make that point. So now you've got this seed promise narrowed down. Coming from a woman? Coming from who? From Abraham or the nation of Israel? Coming from the tribe of Judah? Coming from the house of David? The seed is coming. The seed of the woman. Okay? The one with whom this covenant of grace is ultimately made. He's on his way. He's coming. He's going to be an eternal king who reigns in righteousness who applies God's law in every regard, who blesses the nations, who delivers God's land ultimately, who saves God's people, who sets up the eternal city of Jerusalem, Zion. You guys follow me on that? That's who this king is going to be. You keep looking for him, right? And you keep finding out initially when you open up 1 Kings, you think for about 11 chapters, Solomon has to be him. Right? And then you get this note, ominous again, but Solomon loved many foreign women. No, he's not the seed of the woman. You know, you get it with Moses, you just keep getting disappointed time and time again. Right? It's not the seed of the woman. Now, um, the kings go through a series of being godly and ungodly. Eventually, Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom, split. And they have different, and Israel's kingdoms are incredibly wicked, or kings are incredibly wicked. Judah has some godly kings for a while. Eventually, Israel is, is conquered by Assyria, etc. And then you start to have just Judah with Jerusalem as the capital city, kind of there. Israel, um, the capital there in Samaria. And they are kind of swept off into captivity first. And then eventually, Judah is swept off into captivity. You follow me on that? Okay, Isaiah is a prophet during that period of the kings of Judah and Jerusalem. He's a prophet during that period. I emphasize that because he's a prophet before Judah and Jerusalem are exiled under Nebuchadnezzar. You guys follow me on that? So where is Isaiah located in the storyline? He's located um, while the people of Israel are in the land, specifically the southern kingdom of Judah. He's located there, in the southern kingdom of Judah, in Jerusalem, the capital city. He's located under the people of Israel during the administration of Moses. Okay, follow me on that? Abraham's covenant being administered by Moses with that promise waiting for this king coming from the seed of David. Make sense? That's the story when we get to Isaiah. Okay? That's who he is and where he is. Alright? Judah has not gone off the deep end yet. They're on their way. Right? Um, and he's trying to warn them as a prophet of God. Now, I want to lay this out because there's a second administration, if you will, of this covenant. You have this one with Moses, and then you have what we might call the New Covenant. The New Covenant is talked about again and again and again in the prophets. 
In other words, the prophets are under the covenant with Moses, and are the people keeping that covenant? No. And so he says, a new covenant's coming. A new covenant's coming. A new covenant's coming. Now, that new covenant is not like the one I made with you when I brought you out of Egypt. Okay? The new covenant, not like which one? Moses. Okay? It's specifically contrasted in Jeremiah 31, 31 and following, with Moses' covenant. It's not like the covenant with Moses. My covenant that you broke, though I was your husband, declares the Lord. The law in that covenant was written where? Where's the law written in Moses' covenant? Tablets of stone. I will write your law, I'm actually my law, on your hearts. You guys understand the distinction? Okay? The new covenant's better. It's superior in every way. Because the first covenant, Hebrews tells us, and when Hebrews references the first covenant, it's referencing Moses, makes that very specific in Hebrews. The first covenant was, um, if you will, had fault. It couldn't keep its own commands for you, if you will. Okay? Gave you commands, and you couldn't keep them. It was broken, temporary in that sense. Um, and now the new covenant, the better the superior covenant comes, of which Christ is the substance. Moses' covenant, types and shadows. Tabernacle points you to God indwelling Christ. Follow? John 1.14. And the, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, dwelt among us. It points you to the tabernacle in Christ, God indwelling the Christ. It's types and shadows. Sacrificial system points you to the cross where Christ pays the ultimate sacrifice. Okay? All those kings point you to Christ who is the king. The righteous king. Okay? All those prophets who speak, Christ speaks an even better word. He's the true prophet. All of those priests who serve, Christ is the great high priest. After the order of Melchizedek. They were all types and shadows. Okay, Israel is a national people. The Son of God, Exodus chapter 4. Christ is the true Son of God. The one who keeps God's law in every regard. Are you guys following this? Adam was supposed to be the heir. Israel was supposed to be the heir. Christ is the heir of all things. Okay? So prophet, priest, king, priest, you know, if you will, the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, the monarchy, the law, all of it kept in Christ. All types and shadows pointing us right here to the new covenant, which is given in Christ, who is the substance. He's always been the substance of the covenant of grace. And we're looking forward to that. All these other covenants are driving us there. You guys follow me on that? Okay. Now, I want you to see the, all the covenants together. Look at Ezekiel. So I'll show you in one of the prophets. And chapter 37. There's a lot of um, passages I could turn you to. I chose Ezekiel, as far as the new covenant is concerned. I chose Ezekiel because I want you to see all, these, all the material of these covenants coming together. 
Okay? I'm going to just, we're going to look at verse 24. My servant, now, by the way, there's much more to this than what we just see here in as far as the new covenant. I'm just honing you in where all the covenants come together in the new covenant promise. Uh, Ezekiel 37 has a lot more, all the way back to Ezekiel 36, okay? So I just want to start in verse 24 on purpose, all right? Um, actually, just start at verse 23. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols. Now, what you're going to find when we look at Isaiah and the prophets is the big fundamental problem with Israel is they keep going to idolatry. Okay? That's the prophets are going to rail against them for their idolatry. They continually turn to idolatry, to, to what are called no-gods. It's great in the Hebrew, like, he'll actually call it those no-gods. In other words, they're not really gods, Right? They just, that's that, if you would have directly translated it, the no-gods, okay? Um, now look, they'll, with their idols and their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, okay? And will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Now I want to drive at this right off the top. God is going to save Israel. Why? What kind of people are they at the point at which Ezekiel's writing? A godly people or a rebellious one? Rebellious. Why is he going to save them? For his name's sake. Because he's gracious. This covenant of grace. Okay, I'm going to save them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's the fundamental promise in Genesis 17. That's also repeated under the Mosaic Covenant. It's also repeated under the Davidic Covenant, etc. It's, I will be their God and they will be my people. Right at the core. It's in the New Covenant as well. You'll see that promise in Revelation chapter 21, the end. Okay? Now look what he says. I'll be their God. They shall be people, I'll be their God. Now notice, my servant David shall be king over them. And they shall have one shepherd. What, what, um, what covenant is this? The Davidic covenant. Is David alive now? No. He's dead. He's long since dead at this point. Okay? But he's going to be king over them. So clearly we're looking for a Davidic king. They'll have one shepherd. You notice that language Jesus picks it up? I am the what? A good shepherd. He is not just pointing to the fact that he is very gentle with lambs. Okay? What is he pointing out? He's the Davidic king. Okay? They'll have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. What covenant is he pointing to? That's the Mosaic covenant, isn't it? Okay? Now notice. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. Well, they, they, they shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers, sorry, and they and their children, their children's children shall dwell there forever. What covenant is that referring to? Abrahamic. Abrahamic. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Back to Davidic. Notice Davidic covenant seems to almost form an inclusio around this, doesn't it? A bracketing of it. Now, verse 26. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. What covenant is he referring to? The new covenant. New covenant. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary, my tabernacle, in their midst forever. My dwelling shall be with them. Okay? 
I will dwell with them. Right? I'll be God with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, that covenant God again, who sanctifies Israel, and my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Right? Notice all the covenants come together there. You guys see that? Okay. Now, the theological foundation continued just briefly. Notice what's central to all of these covenants is the what I'll call the Emmanuel Principle. To rip off O. Palmer Robertson, the Emmanuel Principle is central to all God's gracious covenants. What's the Emmanuel Principle? His name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. The God with them. Okay? Central to every one of these covenants, I'll be God with them. That's why the Messiah's name is Emmanuel. God with us. He's fulfilling all of that. You have to keep that in mind when we get to those kinds of that kind of language. Alright. Post-fall, this is the other, so I, I threw that theological foundation there, the Emmanuel principle being central to all God's gracious covenants. Now the next thing I say there briefly is post-fall, grace grounds the covenant. Okay? Here's what I mean by that. I told you I would talk about conditional and unconditional just briefly. Alright? Grace grounds a covenant, so if you will, it provides the foundation. That is grace. Okay? And law, if you will, notice that I say law, shapes it. In other words, law gives you some direction. Okay? Um, When God gives them the law of Moses, they are already under a covenant of grace with Abraham. You guys follow me on that? That's foundational. Then they have the law on top of that. When God commands Abraham, do this and you'll be cut off. Do that. He's already been gracious to Abraham. Foundationally, he's come to him graciously, and then he gives him law that tells him how the the covenant is shaped. Okay, so think about it this way. Jesus says, if you love me, you will what? Obey my commandments. God's commandments give the ethical shape to the definition of what is love. I love Jesus. Do you keep his commandments? I don't care about that. Then you don't love him. Because he's told you what loving him looks like. It's a little bit like saying, I love my wife, but I keep none of the vows I made to her. You know what your vows are doing? They're shaping um, this covenant that you're in, aren't they? They're giving shape to it. You guys follow me on that? Okay. You can't love your wife and be continually violating your marriage vows as a pattern of life. I'm not saying you never violate a marriage vow. I'm saying as a pattern. Your general pattern is violation of your marriage vows. Then you are not loving your wife. Please follow me on that. Okay. Talk about general patterns, not absolute standards here where you violate it. Uh-oh. Okay. Now you don't love her anymore. That's not my point. Um, this is the same as true in our relationship with the Lord. He graciously brings us into that relationship and then he gives us a shape for it. Here's what it looks like to relate to me. I'm a holy God. You love me, you live this way. That shapes the love. Okay? Do those laws, what shapes it, give the power to keep it? 
Does, does the law give the power to keep the law? No. Okay? What gives the power to keep it is grace. Is that God gives the grace necessary to fulfill the conditions He requires. In every one of these covenants, there are conditions given. There are conditions in the new covenant, aren't there? Okay? You have to believe. Okay? You have to believe. Do you not? Right? That's a condition. Okay, but what kind of condition is it? It's a condition that is met by the grace of God. That's why Paul will say it's been given, Philippians 1.29, it's been given to you, to, to you not only to suffer, but to believe. It's a gift of God's grace, even your faith. You guys follow me on that? So God's grace, um, God gives the grace necessary to fulfill the conditions he requires. Okay? So I don't want you to see law and conditions as meaning something's not gracious. Because God gives the grace necessary to fulfill the conditions. You guys follow me on that? Okay? Fundamental to understanding how God operates with man post-fall. Post-fall, man does not have original righteousness. He now has original sin. sin. He's corrupted. Okay? So God covenants with us and he puts conditions in those covenants. Believe. Obey. Etc. Etc. Okay? And he gives you the grace to fulfill those conditions. Gives you the gift of faith. He empowers by the Holy Spirit your obedience. He writes his law on your heart and causes you to walk in his commandments and statutes. Right? That's why, by the way, if there's some disobedient Christian... It doesn't do me a lot of good to yell at them about being disobedient. I'm not saying I wouldn't hold the law up in front of them and say, here's what the law says. But holding the law up in front of them is not going to cause them to now keep it. They may be disobedient because they're unregenerate. They may be disobedient because they're in a period of rebellion. The only thing that's going to cause them to keep it is the Spirit of God giving them a vision of Christ. I don't mean a vision like a charismatic vision. I'm talking about they see the truth about who Jesus is that causes them to want to obey. You guys follow me on that? Okay? Fundamental. You can't understand anything about the prophets, you don't understand that. You come to the prophets, you have to understand these covenants that are in operation. And you have to understand how God is covenanting. Alright. Finally, the major themes of the latter prophets. I'm going to come back to these again and again, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them. I'm just going to go over them quickly. First, thing I want you to understand is the latter prophets, I said the, the lawsuit, by the way, I'm going to rip off these the, the four themes below the lawsuit statement. Those four are all ripped off from Gerhardus Voss, okay, in his biblical theology. But notice the lawsuit brought by Yahweh. What I'm going to tell you is the latter prophets are like prosecuting attorneys. Okay, I want you to think, when you're reading Isaiah, think of him like a prosecuting attorney. He's walked into the courtroom. He has in one hand the book of the law. Here's what the legal code says. And the other hand, the book of Israel's history. Here's the evidence with regard to how well you kept this law. Now I'm going to prosecute you. Your history versus God's law. You guys follow me on that? Okay? He's going to hold the word of God up like a mirror to Israel's history. Okay? And James will tell you the law is like a mirror, right? You hold it up, and you see the truth about you. It ain't pretty. Okay? And so he's going to hold it up against Israel's history. All right? He's going to call in the witnesses. 
I pointed out the witnesses. Hero, heavens, give hero, earth. You guys notice that? In Isaiah, he's calling his witnesses. Isaiah chapter 1. He's calling in the witnesses. Now, where does he get that from? Isaiah, as he calls, hero, heavens, and give hero, earth, for the Lord has spoken. He is getting that from Deuteronomy 32. So turn to Deuteronomy 32. I want you to bring you back there because we're told that this kind of this kind of prophetic examination is coming. Notice how Deuteronomy 32 st- starts as Moses sings. It's an interesting song. He's going to speak in the ears of Israel. Deuteronomy 32 in verse 1. Give ear who? O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. There is Moses in song calling for the witnesses. That is exactly what Isaiah is picking up that language. How does, how does Isaiah know that Israel will know exactly what he's doing when he does that? How does he know? Isaiah comes in and he starts his prophetic message with, Give ear, O heavens, hear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. How does he know Israel is going to know exactly what he's doing as a prophet when he does that? What's that? They read it. They know it. They read it. They've sung it. There's a song Israel sings. Right? You guys know song lyrics. I can just quote from a song and you can tell me the band. If I say, don't stop believing. Band? Thank you. Okay, see how that works? Right? That's why it's a shame that we don't sing the psalms more. And I'm trying to get Jordan to play more of them. Because 150 psalms, it was... For the vast majority of church history, two-thirds or more, they had all 150 psalms. It was normal as a Christian to have them all memorized. How? Because they sang them. Right? They sang them. Um, imagine what your Christian life might look like if you had all 150 psalms memorized. Imagine how that might change your mind and heart. Right? Okay. So, they sang them. Now... This lawsuit is brought. Now notice some points to that. These four strictures I gave you are these these four themes. The covenant Lord's nature and character. It's going to be enforced in all the prophets. The latter prophets are going to keep coming back to, when I say the covenant Lord's, I, I put all caps there just to say, whenever you see all caps, that's the covenant name of the Lord. Okay, Yahweh. All right? The covenant Lord's nature and character. Again and again and again, you see it emphasized in the prophets. They are going to tell you a ton about God's character and attributes. Probably not as much as the Psalms. The Psalms probably tell you more about the character of God than maybe any other section of Scripture as far as just listing characteristics or attributes. But you're going to see them again and again and again in the prophets. That's going to be an emphasis. This is the kind of God we have. He is holy. He is just. Right? So you think of the Trisagion in, in Isaiah 6, the, the repeating three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In other words, it's this emphasis among the prophets on God's character and attributes. Now, you see that in Deuteronomy 32 in verse 2. Um, he says, may, may my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His works is perfect. Okay, For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. 
Just and upright is he. You hear the description of God? It's character and attributes. The, the prophets, latter prophets, pick up on this. They call the witnesses, and then they say, let me tell you who God is. Largely. Okay? Over and over and over again. But they kind of are cyclical. I'll talk about that next week when we overview Isaiah specifically. Next thing they pick up on is the covenant Lord's bond with Israel. In other words, the covenant Lord has made a bond with Israel. has a bond with them. It's covenant with them, and he is their father, and they are his son. Okay? Israel, Exodus chapter 4, is my firstborn son. They're his children. And so he has this bond with them. You can see that bond in chapter 32 and verse 5. Now you're going to say, what? How do you see it there? You're going to see the breaking of the bond too. But look, but look at the assumption behind it. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children. If they are no longer his children, that means they were once his children. Got it? Okay, so I'm by inference. All right, now notice, because they are blemished, they are crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you? Who made you and established you. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of the many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. When he divided mankind he fixed the borders of the peoples. According to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob his allotted inheritance. You hear what he's saying about Israel? You're his elect people. You're his children. He's your father. He has a bond with Israel. You guys follow me on that? The, the, the prophets are going to keep coming back to this. Here's who God is. He's great. He's holy. He's just. He's gracious. They keep coming back. Here's the bond he has with his people Israel. He's like your father. You're like his children. He has loved you. He elected you. He has cared for you. He created you. He redeemed you. You guys follow me on that? This bond they have, and they're going to keep coming back to that theme. Now note, they're going to keep coming back to the rupture of that bond. Verse 5, they have dealt with corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they're blessed. They're a crooked and twisted generation. Okay, He goes on in verse 15 to 22 and drives that home some more. They grew fat and sleek and they kicked. Okay, um, In other words, they, Israel breaks the bond. And the prophecy keep coming back to that. My covenant that you broke, though I was your husband, declares the Lord. You guys hear that language? They've, they've caused a rupture or a breach in that bond. The prophets are going to keep coming back. God is this. He bonded himself to you in this way. Covenanted with you. He loves you. You're his children. You ruptured that bond with your wickedness. And your sin, most expressly your idolatry. The prophets are going to come back to those themes again and again and again. It's going to feel cyclical. It's going to keep hammering that, okay? And then finally, the judgment and restoration of the covenant Lord. He actually says, verse 19 of Deuteronomy 32, The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons, and his daughters, and he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. I love that language. Right? 
They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Now look what he goes on, verse 23. And I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured with plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword shall bereave, and indoors terror. You guys, you guys hear what's coming? Judgment's coming for them. Okay, The prophets are going to keep coming back and again and again to the judgment coming to Israel because they violated the bond that their gracious fathers made with them. You guys follow this? Okay, and he's a holy and just God, bringing judgment. But the other thing coming is restoration, so I want to end here. Verse 36. In the midst of all this judgment, Israel's done nothing. Good, nothing good. Just rebellious. Judgment. Now listen, verse 36 of Deuteronomy 32. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there's none remaining bond or free. Then he will say, where are their gods? And he's going to come back and save them. It goes all the way through verse 43. Look there, the very end. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him. And I think the better translation of this, and he cleanses his people's land in the Hebrew is, and he atones for his land and people. He atones for his land and his people. Okay? He's going to restore them. Now, Isaiah picks all that language up. Hear, O heavens. Give ear, O earth. The Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up. Hear the bond? But they've rebelled against me. The rupture of the bond. God's judgment? Your country lies desolate. Verse 9 of Isaiah 1, If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. We would have been completely obliterated. And he just goes after their sin and his judgment, and then he says in verse 18 of chapter 1, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. You guys see all the same themes there? Okay? And these themes are going to come again and again and again in the latter prophets. The covenant Lord is holy, just, and righteous, and gracious. The covenant Lord has made a bond with His people whom He elected and with whom He's covenanted under Abraham, Moses, and David. Okay? The people have rebelled and ruptured that covenant most specifically the Mosaic Covenant. And the Covenant Lord is bringing judgment, the curses of the Covenant upon them. But because of His promise to Abraham, because the Covenant was established first on grace, grounded on grace, though they broke the law, He will restore them and show grace to them. You guys follow that? Okay? That, you're going to see that repeated again and again and again in the Prophets. Now, I've gone way late, and I've barely even talked about Isaiah at all. But I wanted to give you this to get your hands around this book. Qu- any questions? So when uh, Hebrews 2, 
Yeah, in Hebrews, it says the seed of Abraham. It's God's people. Yes, it's actually used two different ways in, in Galatians 3. First in Galatians 3.16, the seed's singular, referring to the Christ. And then later he says, you're all the offspring of the children of the seed of Abraham, if you're in Christ. And so in Hebrews chapter 2, when he says the seed of Abraham, he's saying that, that the Son, Jesus, has come to help the seed of Abraham which is referring to his church. You see that picked up in chapter 3 as well of Hebrews. He's the, the son over the house. Moses was a servant in the house. Jesus is the son over the house. Yes, sir? Um, so, when, so the song that kind of Isaiah is picking up from Moses that they're familiar with, does, does it better say like this as a general theme? Jesus kind of picks it up when you... Yeah, Moses is definitely the one who accuses them. He holds he's he's given the law that's held up before them. So re- remember that that the law has multiple purposes. One purpose of the law is to show you your sin. Um, we call the pedagogical use of the law. Um, that's not the only purpose of the law. It also shapes how you relate to God in, within the covenant of grace. You guys follow me on that? But first it shows you why you need a covenant of grace. Right? Why you need God to graciously covenant with you. And then it shapes that covenant in the sense of how you behave within it. You guys follow me on that? Okay? So it's both condemnatory, shows you your sin, and it's a gracious guide. If you will, um, Michael Horton, I think, rightly says um, the law is like train tracks. If you're the train, you're on a set of tracks, what do the tracks do for the train? They guide it. Okay, do the tracks make the train go? I mean, not, not on, you know, well, I mean, I guess on the magnetic kind of trains they do, don't they? But, you know, okay, but let's go back to the older kind of trains, all right? Do the, tra- do the trains make, the, uh, the tracks make the train go? No, the, the, what makes the train go, Horton will say, is the grace of God, the Spirit of God. He's the one who makes the train go. But he guides it down the tracks, not off the tracks. Okay, um, And so I think it's important to keep that in mind as you think about this gracious covenant that God has made. Um, the law first shows you you need that, and then shows you how to live within it. Okay, um, There's another use of the law I'm not going to get into now, but Minimally, those two things are true. So the law isn't... Remember, it's not like we get to the new covenant and the law has gotten rid of. It's written in your hearts so that you'll be caused to keep it. It's no longer outside of you condemning you. It's now in you, guiding you. Okay? It is also outside of you condemning you. But you understand, as a believer, now you've been regenerated. It's in you, guiding you. Okay? All right. Um, any other questions? Yes, sir. The covenant name of God is said in the Lord in all caps, and also if we go uh, in Yahweh. Yahweh, yeah. When we see it in certain translations where it might be Jehovah, what happened in the translation? Um, Jehovah is a German transliteration of the Hebrew. So then, then brought from German to English. You guys know the difference between translation and transliteration? Okay. 
Um, Translation is when I take a... um, um, I take an English... I take a word in another language and I bring it over in English and write it the way it sounds in the other language. Okay? Um, Anybody give me an example of that? I'll, I'll give you one. Trans transliterate a transliteration. Yeah. Right, so um, this happens a lot with Japanese language. We have words in English that they just transliterate into their particular phonetic system. So, so how about some biblical words though? Uh, biblical words. Uh, okay, baptism. Okay, that is a Greek word, baptizo. We just bring it over into English like a transliteration. Okay, makes sense. We don't really translate it. Does the word baptism tell you what it is? Right? No, I mean the word means to immerse, to dip in water, etc. Okay? But we just transliterate it. Translation is when you bring it to a different... So when I say... Um, I, you guys know what a lord is? If I say lord, you know what that word means, right? Like a king, a sovereign. If I say Jehovah, do you know what that is? What's a Jehovah? Okay? Well, where, what, what's happened is they've taken this word in Hebrew. I'm not going to write it in Hebrew because it won't do you any good. But, um, but Yahweh, I'm just going to leave the, the vowels out. Okay? They've taken this word Yahweh, Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey. Right? That's, okay? They've taken this word Yahweh and they've said in German, Y is what kind of sound? Okay, W, what we call a vav, a, a wa, in Hebrew, or a vav, in, in German, is like a B. Okay, so ha, ha, ain't same in English. So they've taken Yahweh to Jehovah. You follow me on that? Okay, so you put an E here, bring down the H. Make sense? You guys follow me? Okay, so this is how you get to Jehovah. And then we've just brought it over to English as Jehovah. But it's, it's actually probably a poor transliteration is really what it is. Jehovah is not a good translation of Hebrew. Um, and we could just do Y-H-W-H or we could just say Lord all caps. That's what we do to try to, to send that off. But the word means I am. That's what it means. I am that I am. It's like I am. I mean, it's just this emphatic statement about who he is. But we don't translate it, we transliterate it. Now in English we sort of translate it by putting the word Lord. Why why do we pick Lord? Because Hebrews, whenever they would read the word Yahweh in Hebrew, they still do to this day. You look to a Jewish scholar today, whenever they come to the word Yahweh in Hebrew, okay, they don't say Yahweh. They don't read that word. What they say is Adonai. Okay? Adonai is the Hebrew word for Lord. That's what they say. So even when they see Yahweh, they read. You'll, if you ever hear them reading, I, I listen to these kinds of things. So you ever hear a Jewish guy reading the Hebrew text? He'll get to Yahweh and he'll say, as soon as you see the word Yahweh, you're, gonna say, you're thinking, it's going to say Yahweh in Hebrew, right? You're reading along in your Hebrew text. And he says, Adonai. What? Why do you say Adonai? That's not Adonai. I'm like checking the text. And then I say, oh, they won't say Yahweh. They say Adonai, which is the Hebrew word for Lord. That's why we carry it over that way as Lord. Make sense?
Okay. Any other questions? 